The Guardian. This week on The Guardian Audio Edition. Guardian exclusive. G20 summits. GCHQ intercepted foreign politicians' communications. Man of Steel. Does Hollywood need saving from superheroes? Our audiobook review looks back at 20 years of Horrid Henry and ahead with the launch of a new series from Owen Colfer. To subscribe for free to the Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. And I'm Kieran Yates. This week, we'll be chatting to Grant Hart, co-founder of Minneapolis punk legends Huskadoo, and folky singer-songwriter Matthew Hook, a.k.a. Phosphorescent. And in Singles Club, we'll be giving a thumbs up or thumbs down to tracks by All We Are, Dornick and Oblivion. That's all on Music Weekly from The Guardian. So, joining us in the studio this week is The Guardian's very own Michael Han. Michael, what is in the news this week? What's been happening? What's in the news? I saw Justin Bieber crashing his Ferrari into people. It's all Kanye West releasing an album. You may Dude, have Justin, been aware Justin of that. Bieber has crashed his Ferrari? Into a photographer. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. I've got to be honest that I haven't been following this story intensely closely. Just every time I look at music news, there's a story about Justin Bieber and his Ferrari. Either he's speeding mm-hmm. it around his is neighbourhood. It, is, is his Ferrari? It's not the one that he's got, because he's got a car that looks like the Batmobile. <laughs> no, I think this is just his Ferrari, right? Okay. Just his genuine Ferrari. But, got- but to be honest, all that stuff is in rather overshadow for me because I went to see Bruce Springsteen on Saturday. How, how was Bruce oh, Springsteen? Yeah. Complaining about people talking uh, well, down the front. I, I, I You're very by an incredible you? miracle, um, I got into the pit, so about ten, fifteen yards from the stage, which was fantastic. But the mosh the, pit, the, the mosh. <laughs> it was not really a mosh pit, given the age of the Bruce Springsteen crowd. But there was there was a stag party next to us, and. I think they were a stag party. They were certainly drunk enough to be a stag party, and they were matching T-shirts. One of them, when Springsteen announced he was going to play Darkness at the Edge of Town, um, stripped off, stripped completely naked. No, really? And then half of them... This sounds like the best Bruce Springsteen gig ever. <laughs> yeah. Then half of them talked all the way through racing in the streets. Now, there was enough space in the well, pit. Once he took all his clothes off, what did he do then? He swayed around a bit, sang a bit, and then started putting his clothes back on. Right, okay. He didn't do anything interesting, no. you know, frankly. I know, I know you're after some filth there. I wasn't uh, after filth, no, I'm just, I'm just interested in people exposing themselves at concerts. I've never seen it before. Oh, I've seen I've, it. I've, I've seen, seen, I've seen, seen the old naked breast at heavy oh, metal no, no, games, no, no, no. but never full nudity. I've seen a man manipulating his genitals in time to the opening of Gorilla's headline set. At, uh, <laughs> he climbed onto, they have these sort of like pagoda things by the main stage at Glastonbury. He climbed on top of one of them and gradually started taking his clothes off and then finally exposed himself completely and then started manipulating his penis and testicles in time to the music. It was amazing. Wow. It was better than Gorillaz. What else happened at Bruce Springsteen? What else happened at Bruce Springsteen? He played Darkness at the Edge of Town. Dark- I keep saying Darkness at, and it's Darkness on the Edge of Town. Right. I have a mental block about that word. He played that in its entirety, which, that's my favourite Springsteen album, and was a moment the whole, He played the whole album in its entirety. Sombre old record to be played uh, in its entirety. It's, it's got some biggies. Though. It's got Badlands and the Promised Land for a bit of air punching, but it's got Racing in the Streets, which I think is the single most profound and ambiguous song in rock history obviously it's not I know people will say there are others but you know for me that's the one that gets me it, with the ambiguity it, 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 uh, and so so the guy who took all his clothes off so I'm just going back to the, the, the crux <laughs> of this he, he, he and his mates were so moved by racing the streets that they decided to talk all the way through it wow you know, the most moving song of the set but you know okay, it's fu- there was enough room we moved away I didn't get in a fight 
uh, because it'd be it, amazing. It has been known for me to really lose my temper with people talking at gigs. Be amazing if you got in a fight down the front of the Bruce Springsteen <laughs> with, with, with a naked man. man. <laughs> that would just be. There's tremendous. no way that's going to end well, is it? Really? <laughs> I, I imagine even Bruce himself would, you know, <laughs> would pass comment. You know, this is this is incredible. But it's, it's just incredible the number of stadium gigs at the moment. We've got festivals underway, but yeah, this weekend in London alone there was Springsteen and Rihanna doing two nights at Twickenham and the There's, Who. You went to the Who? Yeah. Oh, so that's the, who? the amazing thing, Kieran at the Who. I did that to impress you. What? Um, <laughs> it, was good. it was, yeah, it was good. Where were they playing? Uh, the O2. And this was Quadrophenia in its entirety, yes, was it? Wow. Exactly. How, how was that? Because I find Quadrophenia to be an album that's uh, a bit lacking in choruses. Uh, yeah, I would say that's quite accurate. It was just really long didn't as well, though. didn't say completely lacking. Bellboy. They did, they did uh, Quadrophenia stuff, and then they did all the anti-establishment stuff to the backdrop of all these big political visuals. And then they did the hits, which took like three hours. But it was good. They have got some and good after, songs, though, The Who. I met Pete Townsend. You Ooh. met Pete Townsend? What, yeah. How was Pete Townsend? Uh, how did you meet him? I mean, under what circumstances? Just, just chilled backstage. You were chilling backstage. Yeah. So why were you hanging on a minute? <laughs> so, so who do you know within the organisation of the Who? <laughs> that um, my friends, my friend's dad is Pino Palladino, legendary bassist. Pino Palladino! Wow. Yeah, exactly. Right. All right. So he is incredible. The and king of fretless bass. Exactly. Fretless bass and the tight perm. I know. He's also playing with D'Angelo this summer. P- Pino wow, Palladino amazing. must hold the record for most Top of the Pops appearances because he was on every 1980s Top of the Pops playing session bass for someone. And he was the only white guy in the dum, BET dum, performance. I used to hate Pino Palladino's yeah, bass sound. sound of a fretless bass, though. Yeah, oh, I hate it. <laughs> it's just the sound. It just, it's a sophistication in a, in a single sound. <laughs> and coming up, Shack Attack. Uh, but no, Shack no, Attack isn't fretless. No, sh- fretless bass. That's Bill Sharp, wasn't like, it? Shack Attack. Fretless bass is more. I think of thing more records like um, like Kate Bush albums, or you know what I mean. Uh, or the Seinfeld. I don't. See. That's you getting slap bass. And <laughs> Sorry, bass I know, I know, I know. Slap bass. That's a different matter. Old Mark King, Thunder Thumbs. <laughs> Had to insure them. Had to insure his thumbs. Anyway, look, we've interrupted anyway, Kieran. You were saying so. Your mate is Pino Palladino. Yes. King um, of the fretless bass. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, it was yeah, it was very interesting. And then Pete did this great quote about being a mod, and he's like, you know, being a mod was all about being in Brighton in the rain, sitting on a rock, wondering what the fuck life was all about. Yeah. And then all these old guys were just like, and then Pino Palladino went. Exactly. exactly. Um, no, so so, and you met him backstage, and uh, what did yeah, you chat about? He shook my hand. About? I said hello, and he said hello. Right. And, uh, that was that. Oh, there you go. This yeah. is the first time ever that a conversation that Who has summoned wherever I lay my hat by Paul Young into my <laughs> head <laughs> because of Pino Palladino's fretless bass. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you go. That. I wonder if. No, he doesn't because I've seen the Who do it. But it'd be brilliant if they did My Generation. <laughs> and when it came to the John Henry songs, it was... I interviewed Paul Simon in the other week at The Clash and he said that he, he bought a fretless bass, a fretless jazz bass. But the problem was his ambitions were outstripping his abilities and without the frets he had no idea what any of the notes were. And he had to get someone to fit frets back on. <laughs> he, does a, he does like the whole solo bit in My Generation. But then all the like drumming solos, they have like the original footage of Keith Moon doing it, really? Yeah, like so the drummer like just plays along to it and yeah. it just plays along. <laughs> <to it. laughs> yeah, well, it's easy to be in um, sync with a Keith Moon drum solo. It's, it's pretty pretty amazing. Um, well, there you go. What what a, what a week of uh, activity and uh, classic rock. Kieran, you're being inducted into the world of classic rock. You're going to come see ZZ Top on Monday, though. Absolutely. No, I didn't know any. I only knew one song, but the other ones were, were all right. You went to see the Who, and you only knew one song. Yeah. How can you? 
Interesting. Really Interesting. Let's move on. Grant Hart was the drummer, co-songwriter, and even cover artist for 80s hardcore high flyers Husker Do. 30 years on, and he's no less busy. He has a double album out next month based on John Milton's Paradise Lost, or rather, I believe, John Milton's Paradise Lost by way of William Burroughs. That's the, uh, that's the general uh, tenant of the album. Michael met him earlier today, and he talked to Grant Hart's five favourite tracks from throughout his illustrious career. I'm joined today by Grant Hart, who's back with a new album, The Argument, to talk about five classic songs from his career. Now, the first song, Grant, you've chosen is It's Not Funny Anymore from Husker Du's Metal Circus from 1983. Why did you choose this one? I've always embraced the, the sentiments of the song. At that time in the worldwide punk scene, there seemed to be just something that was supposed to be a free expression kind of movement. There seemed to be a very tight system of rules and you know tight conformity going on. And I just wanted to uh, clear the air with... You know, my thoughts on that with that song. Well, so even when Husker Du was still closely identified with the hardcore scene, you were already moving way beyond hardcore, weren't you? Was, did that make you know, your audience suspicious of what Husker Du was doing? Hard to say. I think uh, in, in some places the hardcore panzine press might be a little bit put off because here's these guys that played punk but weren't converted thoroughly enough to like actually look the role. We had, you know, done it and discarded it because eventually it felt kind of silly. And uh, after a while, it was just a costume. Now, Bob Mould's autobiography makes most things seem like not a lot of fun, but it made being in Huskadoo sound spectacularly unfun. Is that your recollection of your time in the band? It's not my recollection of my time in the band, and it's not my recollection of Bob's time in the band. I think both of us came out of the experience a little bit disenchanted, and I think it's something that he chooses not to embrace for his own personal reasons, and in a way it kind of legitimizes both of us not working together to say that it was you know, miserable. I can recall a few times where I saw a smile on his face. Let's move on to your second track, which is Pink Turns to Blue from Huskadoo's Zen Arcade album from chose that track moving forward in the timeline, but also it was my first deliberately written song where there was a space to fill in this sweep of ideas that was Zen Arcade. And we needed a song dealing with the the loss of a loved one. And I was just kind of jamming it out one day, and the metaphor, Pink Turns to Blue 
it can embrace a lot of different conversions, living flesh to dead flesh, nowadays a home pregnancy test, a shifting from wanting to be straight to, you know, accepting yourself as homosexual. It's broad for interpretation. One thing that was fortunate for us is uh, we didn't point our ideas so sharply as people couldn't put a bit of their own self into what we were singing about. How did you keep up those levels of creativity back in the early mid-80s when you seemed to be churning out a new album every three weeks and you'd be touring on the back of an album that hadn't even been released yet and the crowd alone just bought the previous album? I mean, Suskadu were just producing song after song after song, album after album after album. Was it just flowing out of you unstoppably at that point? I would not uh, take away the possibility that, you know, there was competitive genius at work. I know Bob's a genius, you know, it's not for me to say about myself, but, uh, you know, it's like two guys on the job site, you know. You carry 50 bricks, I'm going to carry 50 bricks. You're carrying 51, okay, I'll carry 52. Now your third track is You're the Victim from your first solo album, Intolerance, from came to mind because it was uh, you know very very different mood from much of what I had put on display before where it's uh, very one man in a room with the listener and uh, not necessarily stripped all the way down but stripped down to be honest the song I was expecting from intolerance was 2541 which became one of your, your best love songs do songs that become so familiar and so loved end up being a bit of a millstone for a songwriter? It's like being the chef at a restaurant where everybody wants the dish that, you're, that the restaurant's known for, when uh, the chef would actually like prefer like throwing in a different vegetable or spice now and then. What we do the most often becomes the most tiresome. Was it a big jump to go from being part of a, a much-loved band to going out on your own? Did you approach it with any trepidation? Not more than, you know, just the natural... Some very difficult years immediately following the breakup of Husker Du, whether it was uh, personal problems or the problems that result from, you know, your reputation for those personal problems. You know, things that may not have affected your creative output before, you know, all of a sudden... If you should make a slip, people have something obvious to, you know, blame it on. Now, your fourth song is from the 2009 album Hot Wax, and it's You're the Reflection of the Moon on the Water. You're the reflection of the moon on the water. You're the reflection of the moon on the water. You're the reflection of the moon on the water. But you're not the moon. You are the I would give that as an example of probably, to me, the most perfect song that I've composed. And if Patti Smith will cover it, then I 
I can die a happy man. <laughs> it's also really representative of that thread of garage psychedelia that runs through so much of your work. Has that always been the music you love best, or is it the style that you find it most comfortable to work in? Maybe that's an illusion also. People are perceiving my love of rebellion and my mind-manifesting ways as 60s psychedelia. I like drones. I like, I like upsetting the drone. I love mantras. You know, I don't curl up and meditate. I don't uh, put on the paisley shawl or, you know, the love beads or... Got to make sure I don't have... <laughs> but uh, I had older brothers and sisters that didn't really embrace psychedelia, but they were teenagers in the 60s. And, you know, I was handed down their records. And, you know, that was the first pop that I had experienced in my life. So I won't, you know, deny the possibility of there being a strong influence. Of course there's a strong influence. Let's move right up to date then with It Isn't Love from your brand new album, The Argument. That song, as it falls in the uh, the storyline of the Paradise Lost, is uh, would be sung by the Archangel Raphael as he comes to the garden to warn Adam, "Hey, there's this snaky creature running around. That it's not love he's bringing you today. It's another epic. This one as well. Nineteen songs. You, you've never been afraid of the double album, have you? Well, I'm kind of long-winded in some respects." <laughs> But the double album, a bad double, can be the least forgiving on an artist and also the least appealing thing. Did you, is this an album you went to with you know, potentially 40 songs or something and you winnowed them down to, to 19 oh, that you thought were? To winnow Paradise Lost down to a double album. My early discoveries in looking at how other people had revised Paradise Lost, my first observation was like, man, people tend to skip over so much when they, you know, and then I realized why. To make it a five-record album, you'd have to excise a lot of material. Now, finally, more than 30 years since you started recording, Grant, what keeps you going? Is there always the belief that the best record of your career is around the corner? Well, you got to keep, you know, you got to chase one carrot or another. And uh, great inspiration for me, uh, Duchamp. Here's a man that was doing every bit as radical of work in his late 70s as, you know, in his 20s. I think for me to have been acknowledged a certain way early on makes the challenge to continue influencing the zeitgeist as an artist. You know, it's basically ego-driven, and mine is enormous. That was Michael talking to Grant Hart. Grant's new album, The Argument, is released next month, July the 22nd, on Domino. Let's move on then to Singles Club. First up, my choice. Uh, 
That's All We Are. Um, band called All We Are. The track's called Utmost Good. Uh, All We Are, a band from Liverpool, um, who describe themselves, at least uh, for the purposes of this track, as, uh, as, the beach, as the diazepam Bee Gees, or the Bee Gees on diazepam. I like the Bee Gees. I like diazepam. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so why would I not like this track I think it's just brilliant it was uh, Lauren Laverne um, turned me on to this and uh, it's just a really uh, weird intriguing off-kilter drugged out kind of record it does sound a bit like the Bee Gees um, which is great um, the video is very good as well it reminds me a little bit of Gangs, who long term listeners to the podcast uh, will know I uh, I was a fan of their album big fan of their album a couple of years ago um, just got it all sounds really weird sounds really drugged out is a really good song um, has a great video if you watch the video watch out the for the mus- the video is brilliant watch out about 30 35 seconds in watch out for the moustache guy who is the most stoned looking man I've ever seen <laughs> In any video ever. He's a proper red eye contrasting. But anyway, there you go. Um, that's it. Well, we are at most good. Michael. Horrible. Hated it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've... There was a point in which I thought, yeah, bands taking a genre and then removing all the signifiers of that genre, but still kind of leaving a core intact was a really exciting thing to do. I remember going to see Earth at the Underworld five or six years ago, you know, underground metal band, but they'd removed all the gargantuan riffs. Mm. It was still metal song structures, but instead it was on trombone and banjo and assorted other instruments. I thought, this is such a great idea. And then when Gaines started doing it with R&B, I thought, oh, yes, it's really exciting. But we're at the point now with this kind of music that I felt a few years ago about men with beards and acoustic guitars. I just, it, it's all turned into one up. sonic mulch to me. <clears throat> um, I would, I'm at the point now where if I'm going to hear people do... Actually, I can't decide whether this single is uh, an irritating take on reggae or an irritating take on pop R&B because there seem to be bits of both in there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I listen to it. I think actually a song, this kind of music, I don't want to hear done in a druggy, woozy, low budget kind of way. I want to hear it done in a 48 track studio with a shit hot producer and everything happening. And I want it to sound like a big record. I've had, I've had enough of little records that sound like this and I'm starting a campaign <laughs> against them. Well, there you go, Kieran. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said for um, that production thing. I think it probably would benefit from sounding like it was slightly well or better produced but I, I liked it I liked the kind of slight laziness of it and I liked that the, it was sort of I don't know it felt like when you're watching the video as well they were just kind of it was very organic and it wasn't kind of this contrived laziness which I think is what is what's the worst what is one of the worst characteristics of old R&B or kind of op-up that you're talking about is that there is this real contrivance with it. So people are trying to make it sound like, oh, really hazy. And, mm. you know, I don't, I don't think, I, see, I don't really like see this as kind of like a, a, an old R&B thing at all. I don't, I don't I'm pretty sure that's not what they're aiming at. But I can see why, you, I can see why you're sort of... Uh, yeah, but I like that uh, kind of BG vocally like, mm. sound to it, though. I liked, I liked I that. I think it's sort of dis- off-kilter I, disco. I, I should say, like. to be fair to all we are, because genuinely... I actually do not like being horrible about young fans. I think it's a poor thing to do because they're putting the effort in. It, my irritation is not based so much at this particular record, but as at this as a means of working, which mm-hmm. is which is something I, I, it seems to have been taking over the world for for eighteen months or so, and it, it no longer feels fresh and exciting to me. If it, it feels 
Oh, I feel the opposite. I feel like it's exciting because it's so informed by what's going on. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't label this as like black and white or R&B or pop, but I do think that it is definitely informed by those sounds, and that's why it sounds exciting. A full range, a full <laughs> spectrum of opinions there about uh, All We Are Single Upmost Good. Uh, I think it's fantastic. You can get hold of it on 7-inch vinyl, and you get a download chucked in. Uh, on Bandcamp, uh, this is All We Are, or one word, dot bandcamp.com forward slash album forward slash utmost dash good um we will have those details doubtless on the website somewhere let us move on to kieran's choice That is Dornick. Something about you. Uh, that's Kieran's choice this week. Kieran, Dornick. Who's Dornick? Dornick is a... Uh, well, he's an artist and producer from Croydon, and he's signed to PMR Records, which is exciting because I think they're probably one of the record labels at the moment. They're at the top of their game. They have Julia Bashmore and Jesse Ware and Two Inch Punch and people like that on their roster who've done really well. Kind of, they sort of straddle that line between doing kind of underground into mainstream quite well. And Dornick was Jesse Ware's ex drummer, who is now kind of branching out on his own. Okay. This is his kind of first um, offering of that, and. Um, I mean, in light of what you were just talking about, I'm thinking perhaps this isn't going to be your favourite, Michael. <laughs> uh, because it does have that kind of uh, Frank Ocean weekend-esque vibe to it, as you can see. It's a very hear. weird production. Yeah, it has. Lots of synths and claps, but also something else at work Well, things as well. that just seem like weird volumes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the boop, boop, you know, yeah, a bleeping quite, that's... that's um, I quite like that. Although I, no, this, no, that's what I like. That's, that's yeah. What I like but also what I quite like is it feels a little bit like a complete song. You know, it feels quite full, doesn't it? I think, mm. uh, which is nice, and it feels like it's well paced and it's been really considered. And he's got that kind of Michael Jackson, early Michael Jacksony type vocal stuff in there as well, which I think is very nice. And it sounds a lot different to things that we've heard before. It doesn't sound so slavishly copying Frank and The Weeknd. Kind of um, this is a track from a forthcoming album. This, I mean, it's out. On, it's on SoundCloud. Well, hopefully. Well, I did speak to PMR and they're being very shady about giving too many details about it. But this is... Oh, really? His, yeah, so maybe this is going to be a, you know, a huge, a huge explosion album that's going to come from nowhere. But this is uh, on his SoundCloud now, so you should check it out there. Fantastic. Michael, what did you make of it? Well... <laughs> it made me want to climb on top of a tent and manipulate my genitals. Right, did it? Well, okay. Thank God <laughs> so it faded out what it did. That's all I can say. <laughs> or, do, um, or go to Bruce Springsteen and restless. take all my clothes off. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> oh, actually. Wow, wow. oh, okay. Um, um, you know that sometimes I will seize upon these things and actually enjoy them. Um, I, I thought it was brilliant um, because I loved the fact that vocally it sounds so much like classic mid eighties R and B. Mm-hmm. You know, right down to the lyrics. Uh, all the babies that are in the lyrics. Mm. Um, but yet it sounds completely modern yep. at the same time. Um, and I think that's a really, really hard trick to pull out, to, to do something that sounds sounds as if it has a full respect for history, but also completely contemporary. Retro-futurism. Absolutely fantastically done. Mm-hmm. No, um, futurist retro. Whatever, anyway. <laughs> 
good good melody and good beat. Good if tuning. I may, if I may good put tune, on my, yes. my old man hat for a minute, but but really, it's the mood, the sustained, the sustained mood of it. I'm not much of a man for the summer jam, but if I were, this would be my summer jam. Wow, there you oh, go. That's, that's wow. That okay, okay, high praise indeed. I liked it too. Um, I, as I said, I like the weird production. Um, I would be intrigued to hear more by him. Yeah, and see. Uh, how his sound uh, develops. Um, but Dornick, there you go. From Something quite refreshing about having R&B that's kind of sexy and talking about a woman but doesn't have that kind of Drake weekendy, not rapey feel, well, but a, a rapey. that kind of, you know, a bit rapey feel. It made me think about some of the things that, that Julie Birchill used to write when you know rap started taking its turn for the... For the violent and misogynist, and, and she used to write, you know, as, a, as a lover of 70s and, and early mm. 80s black music, soul music, how did it turn from this beautiful positivity into this you know, unrelenting horror? And uh, yeah, I'm, I don't know, it's not my area of expertise, so I'm not going to pronounce whether her thesis is right or wrong, but it, that, that song made That's me wrong. think about that, because it felt positive and... Wholesome's not quite the right word, but if you know what I mean, it felt celebratory rather positivity, than positivity. All I like that. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm all about the positivity. I'm, I'm all about the positivity. Better that, better that than uh, maybe than, than, than Kanye West with his peculiar, peculiar <laughs> attitude. Peculiar. Where's my croissants? Where's my croissants? Not even that. Everyone keeps going about that line. Where's my croissant? What's that one? I want to stick my fist up at like a black power salute. <laughs> not what quite the, as catchy. Think about the croissants. What about the song where he compares having to sit? Having to sit in a different part of a basket, VIP area of a basketball court to his ex-girlfriend to apartheid, right? You can't really make a good meme about that, Alexis. But sonically, it is mental. No, it's great. No, 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 no. I, I, I do think it's a really good album. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, I would the, the, rather my daughter was, was knocking about with Dornick um, than Kanye West. There you go. There's your poster quote. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, let's move on. Finally, Michael's choice. That is Oblivions. Is it the Oblivion? It's just Oblivions. Oblivions. Uh, call the police. Call the police, as he keeps call saying. Call the police. Um, so, uh, who or what is Oblivions? Well, Oblivions are one of those long-standing American garage rock groups. This is their first album for, I think, it's 16 or 17 years. Oh, God, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, and Greg Cartwright, the one of the three Oblivions, is one of those figures who just crops up all over American garage rock. You may be familiar with one of his other groups, Raining Sound. Yes. Yeah, and, and it produced loads of groups, played with loads of groups, and now they're back together with this record, which I, I do think is a fantastic album. But this particular song, my, my favourite off the album, and it owes a great deal to my love of American backwoods reality TV. Right. So you know, I'm a big fan of Deadliest Catch, the Alaskan crab fishing program. Of course, um, aren't we all? Well, who isn't? Um, and also, I'm a great admirer of um, Swamp People, in which um, crazed backwoodsmen from Louisiana go out and hunt alligators. It's all they do. Right. Okay. They, they get they set out their alligator traps. They catch the alligators then. One of them tries to wrestle it into position so the other can shoot it. And then wow. they get it into the boat. What I love about this program 
is that you know you imagine that America is a country that's become completely homogenized mm. by mass media over the last 20 30 years but what's absolutely apparent watching swamp people is that no creole culture is alive and kicking i mean some of these people are incomprehensible they right. they need subtitles right, you right. cannot work out what they're saying and you think dear god i hope i never break down on a back road in louisiana cuz really <laughs> me and these people we're not going to have a lot in common now the reason this is relevant because it is, is that Call the Police is a cover of a Zydeco hit um, by oh. Stephanie McDee. And I, perhaps um, Simon, the producer, could play us a brief clip of the original Wonderful. in case you two haven't listened to it. So what I like about the Oblivions is that they've taken a song that sounds completely different, and yet I think they've thoroughly recreated the spirit of it because the Oblivions record does sound to me like a crazed party. In yeah, yeah, no, I, I somewhere I in the agree. swamp, you know. And while Stephanie McDee's original, it's kind of very cheery. She's saying, "Call the police," almost as a joke. Whereas the Oblivions, you get the sense you better call the police because, frankly, <laughs> someone is going to end up dead here before very long. I think it's a really brilliant example of how a good cover version can remain yeah, really faithful to the original, but without sounding anything like it. You know, mm. the intention is exactly the same, even if the sonics are completely different. I think it's a really brilliant piece of lateral thinking by that band as well to search out a song like that and think. Yeah, actually, this accordion-driven thing, we can turn it into a garage rock. Just replace the accordion with an organ, simplify the riff a bit, and then have you know someone wailing over the top rather than singing tunefully. I think a brilliant piece of recording. Kieran? Yeah, I, quite, I liked that it felt like it was two very different experiences of the South as well, or kind of at least, you know, partying uh, <laughs> in America. Yeah, the Oblivion one was just so kind of being in a dive bar, smashing glasses, this you know, sort of debauched but very drunken, happy. Mm. But also it's slightly terrifying, the kind mm. of start of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre type <laughs> film, you know, <laughs> where uh, people are laughing but you know it's not going to end well. Uh, and then, I, yeah, I did hear the Stephanie McDee one, which is kind of like, it's yes, yeah, it's, it's so kind of euphoric and so kind of dancey and fun. She's almost, it reminded me a little bit of K-pop, which I'm sure is not like, the reference point that she was uh, thinking of. It's a minimal... Yep. Produced, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and that kind, that really kind of affected vocal and uh, something that was informed by, you know, that Cajun, almost R&B stuff that you're talking about. I liked, I, I, I liked it too. I I preferred the original version. Yeah, Because it's just, because it's a weird uh, thing. Yeah. It's just a very odd kind of, uh, sort of conjugation of this sort of perky accordion and this kind of the scent the way it's sung doesn't fit the sentiment of the song and um and the production's really weird and all that kind of thing however um and i thought well the oblivion's thing is something kind of i guess i know more about i don't really know a lot about zydeco nor do i Did, um it, don't mess with my toot toot by beneath that Denise was a, yes, that yeah, you and i both remember that because that was on the radio one touted as possibly the first uk zydeco well, hit in the go. mid 80s didn't well, they? They, got, first and last. they got behind i was it. gonna say uh, zydeco don't hit, mess with my toot toot don't mess with my toot yeah i, I know you got another woman but but um you used to get a lot of um Andy Kershaw. Andy, Andy, Andy Kershaw was Kershaw, playing. Like, rocking zydeco or whatever but yeah i think the first actual zydeco a notionally Zydeco record I heard would have been the the one on Graceland, you know, where Paul Simon sings about Clifton Chenier. Which which track Zydeco oh, on Graceland? God, that was your mother. That was your mother. Was that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. So, I mean, I don't really know a lot about Zydeco, and maybe I would dig 
uh, more Zydeco if I heard it. It's from Louisiana. I, I, from I, Louisiana. I literally don't even know what Zydeco it's, it's, is. It's, to it's, be honest it's, with you, it's, as I believe it's the it's the Cajun music. It's it's the the French American swamp right. music, swamp right. party okay. music, okay. Louisiana, okay. and it does sound like it would be the most fantastic night out if you've got a good Cajun band. Well, you see, you're saying bar, this, you're, cha- you're changing and your, you're changing your tune. I was going to say, then first of all, it's like I can't understand what anybody's saying, and they're going to kill me. <laughs> oh, it'd be the best night out ever. Um, <laughs> Sometimes that's, the nights where you get killed are the best nights ever. <laughs> that's terrible. You'd be stood there going, "I wish I was back at that Bruce Springsteen gig with that fella in the nap." Um, now. Um, but then, for saying that, you see, had I not heard the original that, I think that Oblivion's thing was... was t- I mean, I, I really like the Oblivion's thing. I really like it. And I, I uh, not knowing the history of it, thought it had a kind of almost like ZZ Topish aspect to it. As you say, it's got that kind of like... It sounds like sort of old beardy guys playing it, rather than, which is different to the usual, you know, uh, standpoint that Garage Rock comes from. Um, which is, you know, the a, I'm young and of extreme pissed youth. off, snotty, you know, thing. Um, so yeah, I, 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 um, I, I liked both of them. I liked, I liked the Oblivion track. It was just that the original just, just inched it for me because it was just oh. a weird record. But there you go. Um, Call the police. Call the police is taken from Oblivion's new LP, Desperation, which is out now on In the Red Records, and that, my friends, is Singles Club. Matthew Herc is. Phosphorescent. Ten years after his debut album, the uh, Alabama-born singer-songwriter is finally getting plaudits thrown at him left, right and centre for his sixth release, Muchacho. Laura Barton had the pleasure of meeting him backstage, hence the slightly uh, dubious sound quality. Um, Matthew, we are backstage at Village Underground. Um, you're playing London tonight. When was the last time you played here? Well, I did a solo thing before Machacho came out uh, at the St. Pancras Church. And then, but yeah, with the band, it's been a couple of years, maybe, maybe three. And things have changed a lot since then? Yeah, they have. Uh, things are, well, especially in the last couple of months, uh, I should, would be the more accurate way to put it, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the craziness of that for you? Which part? Which <laughs> So, well, I heard that this record, since its release, has sold as many in the first month, is it? Um, as your last record did in its entire release period. Yeah, I think that is true. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I couldn't be more, more happy about that. How do these songs feel to play? Because it's, it is quite a, a heart-rending record. It's not that bad, actually. Um, I think by the time this far along in the process, you're sort of removed from, from the initial roughness of, uh, of the emotional stuff. Uh, I think by the time you have... Even by the time you finish the album, actually, I think you've kind of... Uh, it, the writing part is probably the more emotional part. A- after that, it's, uh, I think you, uh, or at least I, um, tend to just be thinking a lot about sound and, and um, you know, making a good show and doing, just doing a good job, you know. Obviously, you know, out of the blues, some nights um, 
a song will, will grab you or grab me in a way that I assume it grabs others. Uh, you know, I can sometimes it'll surprise you with something fresh in there. So, yeah. was written or inspired by your time in Tulum in Mexico, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that time? You, you went off there for quite a while, didn't you? I just, I just went down there for about a, a little over a week. and um, <laughs> We thought it was not, six months. Like, yeah, it didn't, it didn't take all that much. It was really just kind of a... Um, I didn't make the record down there. I just yeah. wrote. So like the six months is what it took me to make the record um, when I came back to New York. What was it that led you there, and, and why, why Tulum, and what was it that was special for the record? It became special for the record after the fact. I, it could have been anywhere. I, I just, I literally picked a place um, at four in the morning. There was the quickest flight out of New York that got me out of the country and out of just my own life. And so, yeah, a few hours later, I was down there. A friend had told me about this town that was kind of off the off the grid, and it doesn't have you know the power isn't running all the time, and, and you know getting away from electricity and, and getting away from my life and just getting in touch with the night and day rhythms and all that. that it ha- you know, it happened quickly, and, and, and just trying to sit down and, and write and just see if these songs were uh, something to, to work on. Um, it was an open ended. I didn't have a return flight. Basically, what happened is is in that week, I just I got so excited about the songs that I just wanted to come back and start working on them. So, where do you feel it now? If you listen to these songs, where do you feel it most tangibly? Is it in the rhythms? Is it lyrically? Is it just in the mood? I think lyrically. I think I think. Um, and a little bit of the mood, but for me, it's like little pockets of lyrics. You know, for example, exactly where I was sitting when I wrote that, and I realized that you know, your environment does uh, influence some of what you're doing. You know. Between the shadow and the storm, a little pup was being born. A little pup without his horns, oh my, my. If mama meet me neath the moon. I started out with this song, Muchacho's Tune. I'm really happy with the sound of that song. It's kind of otherworldly, but still kind of earthy at the same time. Um, and so I kind of thought the whole record would be that kind of underwatery vibe. For a while, you weren't sure whether this was going to be a phosphorescent um, album, were you? Right. Um, right. Why did you well, I didn't know if there was going to be one at all, actually. That's the, yeah, yeah. Once I started making this record, I knew it was going to be a phosphorescent record, yeah. What, what were the characteristics that make, make it phosphorescent? Because I know you had some other sound sketches that you were working on before, yeah. and you put them in another place, really, didn't you? Right now, I think, for me, still, uh, this thing called phosphorescent uh, is based around songwriting with lyrics, and, and, um, and it has room for, for uh, tangents and stuff, but... Um, I wasn't sure if I, if I was if I could make the kind of record that I or just the kind of sounds that I was exploring and the stuff that I was doing. I, did, I just wasn't sure if I could call it phosphorescent, and and if I did call it phosphorescent, I, I think it would have just probably confused a lot of people. It was just kind of a confusing time, and then, and then again, these songs kind of 
kicked their way in, and then it, it became clear right then that it was no problem to call it a phosphorescent record and do this thing. Explain to us the meaning of Muchacho, the album title. I mean, literally, I think the translation is, is boy. Um, but I think it has a, a connotation of, like, you know, man-child or, or some kind of uh, maybe irresponsible grown-up or something like that, you know. But, you know, not despicable, I don't think, uh, hopefully. Just a little bit of a reprobate. Sure, hopefully with, with still some redemption left in there, I think. And, uh, yeah, so it kind of really encapsulated that for me in a, in a way that I thought was, for whatever, whatever the characters in these songs are, are going through, um, it seemed to kind of encapsulate that for me. Lovely, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that was Matthew Hirk, a.k.a. Phosphorescent, talking to Laura Barton. His new album, Muchacho, is out now on Dead Oceans. And that's it for this week. Thanks to uh, Phosphorescent, to Matthew Hirk, uh, to Grant Hart, and, of course, to Michael Han. Thank you very much for coming Thank again. you very much, Alexis. Thank you, Kieran. Um, no problem. Uh, oh, so, uh, I'll answer on Kieran's behalf, though. There you go. Patri- <laughs> patriarchy in action. <laughs> Check your privilege, Patrice. I know. It's terrible. She does take sugar. Check out guardian.co.uk forward slash music weekly for more information on this week's show. We will see you uh, briefly next week, and then next time we see you, we'll be deep in the, uh, in the countryside of Glastonbury. Take care, folks. Bye-bye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.